Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Acts 10, 1-23 At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say, say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to, the, spoke to him and had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the house, housetop about, uh, excuse me, about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made the inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is your reason for coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house, and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. Okay, so this passage, starting in chapter 9, verse 32 onwards until chapter 12, uh, middle or late chapter 12, Saul, or Paul, starts to fade and he's going to come back, but for now he's off in Tarsus, trying to avoid being killed. Um, and the focus now shifts back onto Peter for this time. And we catch up with him as he's making this missionary tour. He's going up the coast of Israel, following, it looks like, the exact same pattern that Philip followed after leaving the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And so he's going up and he's visiting churches, encouraging people, preaching, etc. And he stops first in a place called Lydda which is about 40 kilometers away from Jerusalem, and it's on the way to Joppa. And when he stops in Lydda for the first place, he heals a man named Aeneas, who had been paralyzed. He was a paralytic for eight years. Then he hears that uh, there's a woman who has died, uh, Tabitha, or in Greek, Dorcas, both names meaning um, gazelle. 
And so he goes and he raises her. He prays for her and she's raised from the dead. Now those are significant things, of course. But they're, they're put in this small context. They're really quickly summarized, very little detail. And why would he do that? Well, Luke is giving us that because he's trying to show something. When you read those two things, which you didn't read this morning, what you notice is the first thing is it's evidence of the kingdom coming. That when God comes, when Christ has come, then things start to change and the kingdom begins to penetrate the earth. And so you begin to see signs of it, like healings, like conversions, like changes in people. But the other thing that you can't mistake is if you read it carefully, you see there's almost identical wording in those two healing accounts between Jesus' healings of the paralytic and of Jairus' daughter and Elijah. For instance, here's a little tip if you're reading the Bible. When someone is dead and they put them in an upper room, they're about to be resurrected. It seems to happen. So if, maybe that's what we do with people from now on, right? Stick them in the upper room. But So Luke is trying to say, hey, Peter remains anointed. He is the leader of this church. That's the purpose of that, those stories. But then we move into this strange interaction with, with, with the centurion. And I say strange because it is puzzling, at least the timing. Why does God wait until this very moment to give him this vision of the animals coming down on the sheet? Why bother? Like we have Cornelius coming, this Roman who needs to hear the gospel. Why do these two stories coincide? It's not accidental. God could have given it to him earlier. He could have given it to him later. Why do these two stories overlap? And that's what we're going to do. And I think we gain an insight into what's happening here if you watch the command that God gives him and see it the way I think it's intended. There's a twofold, well, it's one, one command, well, three. He says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Simple. Now, he's, of course, speaking in one sense about the, 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 the animals, the unclean things. Rise, get up, kill them, and eat them. And he's making a point about the cleanliness of food, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But he's also doing something else. If we look carefully, he's challenging Peter far beyond his behavior and asking him to change his everything, the way he thinks, the way he understands the world and life. So he's actually, in some way, asking him as well to rise up from his Jewish perspective and into a Christian understanding of well, food and, and the centurion. He's asking him to kill his old views and then to learn what it means to eat in light of Christianity. And so what is happening here, make no mistake, is nothing short of a conversion of Peter. He's already saved. But if the mission is going to extend beyond the Jewish Christians to the Gentile world, not only does the centurion need to be converted, but the church does, because they have to begin to see things differently. And this passage and that vision shows us so much, and it's so helpful for us as well, hopefully. So let me look at those three things. First is the command to rise. Now, let's get into the, the wonderful topic about unclean food. So if you're a skeptic, and you're not a believer, and you're here, you're listening, you're watching, you probably were like I was when I was a skeptic, and you think that the food laws and the clean laws of the Old Testament are arbitrary, archaic, pointless, um, they seem primitive, and, and I can appreciate that's the way it sounds. The challenge, of course, is then you, you, they, if you're a skeptic, you don't go and do the work to find out what was going on. Instead, you ask a Christian. And most Christians, sadly, don't know how to answer the question about why these foods, what's happening, why specifically, why is it that a menstruating woman can't be in the, in the congregation in the Old Testament? Why is it that any bodily fluids, if a man has, uh, comes in contact with his own reproductive fluids, he shouldn't be amongst People, sorry if that's making you uncomfortable, but it's in the Old Testament. Why? Why is it if you can't touch mold? Why can't you touch a dead body? Why can't you eat shrimp? 
Like, what's the thing? And what Christians do often is they respond usually pretty poorly to this because one is you don't know the answer, maybe, so you try to evade it. And you say, well, listen, that's Old Testament. We're not under that anymore. Praise God. And then you say, but that absolves you of having to answer the real question, right? It gets you away from it. You evade it. Or what we also do sometimes, and I think, no, I know it's wrong, is we, we try to appease the modern materialists. See, modern materialists today want to remove supernatural. If anything is going to make sense to me as a modern Canadian, it better make sense in the practical, physical world I can feel and touch. So if you're telling me not to eat shrimp, it better be because it's got mercury poisoning. It better be if, there better be a dietary or, or a nutritional reason for these, these laws. So what we do as Christians is we start doing the math and we say, well, you see, the Bible's right. You shouldn't be drinking blood because it communicates diseases, etc. Listen, that's not why this, these food laws are there. Okay? And you know why I know that? Because if, if shrimp was bad for you before, it's still bad for you now. Making it clean doesn't mean all of a sudden God said, I now remove the diseases from the lobster. It's not what he's doing. So when, he, when Jesus says here, I'm making them clean, what is he saying? We're going to talk about that, but let me move into something else first and say, why are anything clean and unclean? Why is it that this God, if he's holy, why is, this, he, why is he so petty that he can't get near a dirty thing or a sinner? It makes, you know, this God is just so godish. You know, and I, I can understand that appeal or that, that reasoning for a skeptic. But let's, let's talk about why. And I'm going to start in a strange place. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. If you... <laughs> I've recently reread the book to my two littlest kids. And there's a scene, and I won't go through the whole story. Uh, Willy Wonka owns a factory. Some kids have come in to take a tour, and he's going to give his factory to one of them. And near the end, there's only uh, two people left, this, this family uh, and, um, and Charlie and his, his grandpa. And they go into a room that, where Wonka has developed this technology that allows him to beam chocolate from his factory to your television, but not just the picture, but you could grab it by put your hand in the TV and pull it out. Okay? Incredible technology. But here's what happens when they walk into the room. The family, together with Charlie and Grandpa Joe, stepped out of the lift into a room so dazzlingly bright and dazzlingly white that they screwed up their eyes in pain and stopped walking. Mr. Wonka handed each of them a pair of dark glasses and said, put these on quick and don't take them off here, in here no matter what you do. This light could blind you. And as soon as Charlie had his dark glasses on, he was able to look around in comfort. Now, the room was so dazzlingly white that Charlie couldn't be in it. No one could be in it without it harming them, right? It was impossible. It was just the nature of the room was that. And so what's fascinating to me is this. God is the same. And people say, well, he's being so arbitrary. If, if there's a, an eclipse and you look up at the sun and you go blind... You know what you won't say? Fickle son, arbitrary, silliness, petty. No, you wouldn't. You'd say, no, it's the nature of the sun to destroy my eyes. That's what you do. And the nature of God is he is holy. He is the white room for Charlie, the white light, so pure that you cannot stand in the presence of it unless you're either protected or of the same nature as that room, holy, perfect, clean, this Bible speaks of holy and unholy as in synonymously with clean and unclean. So don't think clean, we think filthy, less than. No, it means you're not prepared. You can't stand in the presence of this God any more than Charlie could stand in that room, any more than your eyes can stand to look at the sun. It's not about being fickle. It's the nature of God and the nature of you. It's quite, it's quite straightforward, I think. But now, 
How do you get this way? How do you become unfit to stand amidst this holy God? And there's a bunch of ways in the Old Testament, and the food laws are one, but there's also moral laws. So there's moral uncleanness. Because God expects that you and I would, be, would care for the poor, that we'd have sexual integrity, that we would promote justice. And if you don't do those things, you're morally unclean, unfit to stand before God, because he is perfectly all those things. And I think most of the world would agree the moral laws make sense because even a skeptic or or a naturalist or an atheist would say, we need moral guidelines, surely. So they could say, fine, if he's a murderer, makes sense. But what about the food? What about the touching stuff? It It doesn't seem to jive with a holy, good God. It seems instead made up. Right? And I can I appreciate it, but here, let's talk about that. You could be made unclean by contact with things, I said it earlier, reproductive fluid, mold, dead bodies, or by eating the wrong things. And what you want to not do here is say, well, you see, it makes sense that you don't touch mold because it can get sick. That's true, of course. But that's not actually why the laws exist. So I'm going to tell you why. It's not rocket science, but it's you have to remember this. Every time... So let's use, I'm gonna, I don't know, maybe kids in the room, but I have to say it, because it's the most, most, the one I hear in the, in the culture most, and I want to make sure, if you're a skeptic, you have this answered, and if you're a Christian, you know how to answer it, is the question of women who are menstruating, okay? Because they're both unclean, even if you eat, the same as if you eat pork, and the, the, the logic behind them is exactly the same. God is life, the essence of life, pure life. Menstruation, for instance, is a product of the fall, now, that doesn't make you evil. One of the things that you see in the Old Testament is a menstruating woman, a man who touches a dead body, a tanner who Peter's staying with who has to touch uh, carcasses. He's not a sinner in the sense that he is wrong and God's angry at him, but he is unclean because he has touched something that's dead. You have come near something that's, that, that, that reeks of decay and human death and degradation. Humanity is, I mean, it's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is dying. Everything is decomposing. We are by nature death, and God is so pure, so holy. He says, you can't, you have to understand, you can't come near me with anything of death, because I am only life. Anything of death that comes near me is either destroyed or restored. So you can't come near me if you've gotten anywhere near anything death. It's not because he's angry with the woman, or the woman's bad, or the man is bad if he's touched the carcass to, to feed his family. That's not, there's nothing about that in the Old Testament. What it's saying, and what God is saying is, I am life, you are death, and you need to know that. You need to understand how holy I am. Holy isn't just an arbitrary thing. He is holy. So, that's the first thing. And now we see, when Jesus comes, and it's, it's Jesus speaking to, in this vision to Peter, and he says, don't call un or common, common, which is another word for unholy. Um, don't call that. Uh, don't call anything that God has made clean unclean. Now, what we want to read when we say that is we think sometimes that what it means is what God has made it. Listen, the shrimp was never unclean. Now, all of a sudden, he's changing the rules. That's not what's happening here. The shrimp remains unclean to this day. Understand? Let's, let's, let me walk you through this. So, what happens is this. It's not like when we decided a few years ago to make marijuana legal in Canada. It's not like we just changed our mind. Marijuana's never changed, but now all of a sudden we just make the arbitrary decision that because culture is pressuring us and we've loosened up our whatever, we're now going to make it legal. We think that that's what God is doing here. Well, I'm just I'm changing the rules mid mid game. It's not what's happening, friends. Every single person who is not a Christian 
continues to live unclean. You know why? Because they're still under the law. Remember what Paul says? If you're, if you're not a Christian, you're under the law. It stands, you're still hitting the dead things. You're still bringing God, yourself, filthy as you are, before God. And so the only, what he means when he says it's been made clean, he says it's been made clean in Christ. Because Christ is now your cleanness. He has lived perfectly, he's handled it perfectly, so that now when you stand before God unclean, he sees Christ's cleanness. His purity is yours. His righteousness is yours. And so it's not that these things are all of a sudden, it's now okay, you know, bacon is now okay. Bacon is not necessarily, it still smacks of decay and death. Why? Because the pig is always, what does a pig eat? Anything. Anything. We're talking more about what eating at the end. So this is why the laws are there. It's to remind us that you and I require the glasses that Charlie got. It's to remind you that you're so unclean, you can't stand without protection or without being clean yourself. And since you have, it's impossible for you to be clean or holy before God, you need someone to be your glasses. And Christ has done. So this is what, what the vision is telling Peter. Peter, do you understand what's happened here? Something has occurred. You have to rise out of this idea and your assumptions that the Gentiles who you're about to meet with, you need to know, the Gentiles you're called to, the Gentile you're about to meet, is not unclean if he accepts Christ. This is, this is, you have to change your Jewish thinking. And that leads us to the second part about killing. Because there was a very clear, and most of you probably know this if you've been at church for any length of time, there's a lot of very clear assumptions about who is clean and who isn't about the Jews. They're not, they not fans of the Gentiles. And Peter is shocked by what he sees. And we can appreciate that. He needs to hear it three times, apparently, before he gets it. And even after three times, we're told he's inwardly perplexed. He's still like, what? What, am I, what, is, what, what is that? And the reason he's perplexed is not because he doesn't understand what he's seeing. It's because what he's being asked to do is something that is 1,500 years of tradition, and family, etc. And it's rocking, it's changing his world. He's not being asked to change his behavior, but to change everything he knows. So it's, we have to appreciate, for poor Peter here, that it's difficult. And then let's get back to the main question. Why now? Why does this vision come now? There's this uh, scholar named um, John Polhill. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he writes very briefly, purity distinctions and human discrimination are of a single piece. And what he means is, Peter, it's not just about the food. The food is important, but the food has acted for Israel for so long as a means of separating and keeping you divided from the nations. Now, in Christ, that division is gone. And you need to see the food part has been keeping you away from people. And because I'm erasing the food thing in Christ, now there's no, nothing to bar the mission to the Gentiles. You can eat with them and love them, and it actually transforms food, which we're going to say at the end. And so... Uh, let's just emphasize a little bit how much Jews were terrified to be around Gentiles, um, if they were Orthodox anyway. But you do see Peter softening a little, because Peter's staying with a tanner who would have been unclean. So Peter probably would have been seen as a very progressive sort of guy, even though we know he lingers, if you read the rest of the New Testament, he hangs on to his Jewishness a little longer than Paul. But in the book of Jubilees, which is not a, bi a biblical book, it's a, it was written about the second century BC, and the Jews used it. It was a retelling of Genesis and Exodus. Um, it's apocryphal, you know, like the book of Enoch and those things. And so it's not scripture, but it does give us a good insight as to what the Jews believed in the second century BC and up until Peter's time. And here's what it says in chapter 22 of the book of Jubilees Separate yourself from the nations and eat not with them. 
and do not according, sorry, do not according to their works and become not their associate for their works are unclean and all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. And so you understand a little maybe why people really had a problem with Jesus eating with people who were not were Gentiles or being around sinners. There was this very clear gap socially and culturally, theologically in every way between Jews and Gentiles. And so these visions are, in, you see with Peter, he may be sitting and, and hanging out with a, ta- with a tanner, but he still has the problem, and, and you're going to see as the book goes on that Peter holds on to these ideas about food and circumcision longer than Paul. And what he's under the impression still is he doesn't really understand how the gospel has made its way into every area of his Jewishness. Because we have the privilege of standing 2,000 years back. What you don't know is poor Peter has just become a Christian. And he's now in the first year or so, well, three years with Jesus, and now he's maybe a first year or so of ministry after the resurrection. And now he's learning what it means because he's taking the gospel and trying to apply it to every part of Jewishness and saying, how does the gospel change or modify how I think? What is, it, is there an impact? And so he's struggling to figure out how the, how, the, how the gospel affects his relationship with the outsiders, which is important because one's about to knock on the door. So it's, that's why they're coming together. By making, uh, this is another scholar, Daryl Bach, wonderful scholar, by the way. By making unclean food clean, God is showing how table fellowship and acceptance of Gentiles are more easily accomplished in the new era. The vision symbolizes what separated the Jews from the Gentiles, and it has now been removed. So, Peter needs to see this, if he's, that it's more than just removing a law, but it's opening salvation. That's what the vision is saying. It's not just saying, eat, the law is no longer in place. It's saying, look at how God is opening up salvation to everyone. No, no longer divided by what people eat or otherwise, assuming they believe in Christ. So, I don't know where I'm at here now. I've been talking wonderfully. So, not wonderfully in my content, just I'm just going off on a tangent here. So, Peter's command, he's shocked, of course. The command to kill shocks Peter, but the command to be killed, to have his assumptions killed, transforms him. So he has to minister to the Gentiles, and if he's going to do that, he can't just grudgingly do it like, like Jonah does with the Ninevites, like, all right, I'll do it if you, have, if you make me. But he has to actually love them. He needs to actually see them as equals before God. And this is why I said earlier about this conversion. Another last one I'll quote for a scholar, David Peterson. By means of the issue of hospitality, Luke demonstrates that the conversion of the first Gentile required the first the conversion of the church. Indeed, in Luke's account, Peter and, uh, and company undergo a change that is more wrenching by far than the change experienced by Cornelius. They need to change if they're going to bring the gospel to the world. And so Peter now has been told, go, get up. See things differently and put to death these old ideas you had. Kill them. Rise and kill. But now, eat. And here's where we'll close in a minute. So, this is, uh, let's go through the, a bit of a history of food in the Bible. I should do a, a class on the theology of food. It's too wonderful to not talk about in depth. But let's start here. Food. God creates animals, and we're part of them. We're animals. We're creatures. But something is interesting. And I won't get into communion, but I want to, because in the creation account, we are told that the animals eat of the green plants, but we eat of the grain and the fruit. So it's interesting that the animals aren't told. We don't hear it. They're going to eat the things that make up communion. I can't get into that. It's too much, too wonderful for a moment. But here we have, we're different. Animals eat, so do humans. But don't we eat very differently? 
Because animals don't cook. There's no duck a l'orange for the, for the tiger. Right? There's no chili cheese dogs during the Super Bowl for, for the animals. We're the only creatures that not only eat, but we eat in a very different way. I mean, we watch these food shows on Netflix. You know, I see a guy, I don't know how they dream this up. It's like, I dehydrated water. What? That's oxygen. I don't understand. But he does it. And then I have this seawater, which now becomes this wonderful salty thing I can put on things. I don't understand it at all. But see what we do with food? We don't just eat it, we enjoy it. We make it aesthetically pleasing. We, we cook, we feast, we make beautiful things out of it. It's incredible what we do. We, we, look at this even. Have you ever noticed you're always told, what are the manners? We create manners. That's another thing. Don't put your elbows on the table, which I'm the worst at. Um, we have this etiquette around it. But even the language we use is this. Don't wolf down your food. Right? Don't eat like a pig. My kids, don't behave like animals. I'm the worst. That's actually Sarah says that to me. I have very terrible table manners. I'm sorry. Um, so what is food? We're given it, and it's meant to not only nourish us, but to delight us. In fact, when the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good, it's Psalm 38. And um, when he says that, you know what he's saying? I only know that Christ is the bread of life because I know what bread is. And I only know he is water because I know what water does for me. It satisfies, it nourishes, all these things. And therefore, food becomes a shadow. Food itself and the delight of it and the preparation of it and all of it becomes a means of understanding God better. And so, but it doesn't all remain well because we start using food very poorly and you probably never thought about the vast implications of food in half of humanity's fall. Obviously the fruit, we pick too early and eat it. I say too early because there's some debate about wondering whether God would ever have let them eat from it when they were ready for it. But they take it regardless and they eat causes trouble. Their children, Cain and Abel, what is Cain? A farmer. And his improper use of food before God leads to his collapse. Then, I'm going to have to fast forward because I can't go through the whole Bible. We get to Noah. Noah gets out of the ark and he plants a vineyard. And what does he do with the first batch of wine? Drunk. Right? There's a misuse of wine. There's a misuse of, cre- of, of fruit and of food constantly. And eventually, fast forward a lot, we get to the prophets. And you get guys like Amos in Amos 6 and 9 that says, Because of your sin... Your wine and your feasting are going to come to an end because you can't make wine when you're in a refugee camp in Babylon because you need civilization. You need vats and you need processes. And so, symbolically in the Old Testament, the loss of feasting, the loss of food, the loss of wine is synonymous with their sin. But we have the wonderful passages all through the prophets as well that promise a return of wine and feasting. In fact, the most wonderful one and you can't see it, but the name of this sermon would have been Feasting in the House of Zion. It comes from Isaiah 25. Here's what he says. This is talking about salvation. When the Messiah comes, the restoration of, of the world, this is what, what is described. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is beautiful. Listen, last part. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so when Peter, as a good Jew, sees 
that everything is changing. He's not just seeing that you can now eat pig and shrimp. What he is seeing is a fulfillment of this promise of Isaiah. That it's not just about food, but God is now bringing, it's a foretaste of the eventual supper of the Lamb with all people, with all the believers. And so it's perplexing him. Obviously, he's under, it's rattling his brain. It's going to take him time to come to terms with it. But what he now knows is that thing that once separated him from the people has now been moved away. So now the food isn't a point of division between Cornelius and Peter when they meet. Instead, it's a point of fellowship and hospitality. And so in our mission as Christians, we now have this privilege of being able to take food and hospitality and turning it into a means of reaching people. Because we can not only eat with them and show them, and listen, what's a feast? Let me talk about feasts. Feasts have, first, you have to have a lot of people. Uh, Doritos by yourself in, a, in front of Netflix is not a feast. doesn't matter how long it is or how much money you spend on Doritos. You need people. You need food, usually a surplus, an abundance of food. The whole point of a feast is that you don't eat that way all the time. And then, of course, you need a celebration. Feasts are always for something, a wedding, a birthday, um, whatever it is, some sort of special occasion. And so now, because that has been removed, you can now bring people onto, into your table and not just, listen, don't feel bad. Spending, if you need, uh, watch movies like, or read books like Babette's Feast and so many of these movies that talk about food. And they help show something of the restorative nature of, of food. But you can then gather with people and not just serve them good food and enjoy it and open up a bottle of wine. I'm sorry if you're one of the absta- you know, abstaining folks. Biblically, you can drink wine, just don't get drunk. That's all. That's my pontificate for a moment. And enjoy the feast. Linger at the table with one another. Laugh, share stories, use it for... And not just that. Know and maybe even articulate occasionally that this is not just food but it's us reminding. When we do this together, we are taking a foretaste of that one feast we'll have with Christ one day. Because remember when he died, when at the, what he says at communion uh, at the Last Supper? I will not drink of this wine again until I do it with you, basically, when he comes back. Which means he is not touching the wine, wine of its abundance, of its joy, of all these things. And he's waiting to take that first drink with you. So when we get together and we pray before our meal, it's not just to do something, get it out of the way. It's to remind us that we only live because something died. And a foretaste of, thank you for this food, and I can't wait to eat it soon with you. And we share that with others, and we welcome them into that joy and that fellowship. And so food is a remarkable part of what's happening here. If you're a Christian, gather friends around for barbecues, chips, whatever you want. <laughs> Tell them to taste and see that the Lord is good. And show them as best you can, that these are foreshadowings. You may not ever say that. You may not say to a, an atheist neighbor or a Muslim neighbor, this is a foreshadowing of the suburb of Lamb. That's kind of weird. So you may not use that language. But what you do say is, this is good. This is important. And you laugh. And you enjoy. And you share fellowship knowing that there is nothing, nothing apart from you except for Christ. They're accepting Christ, which is a big thing. But there's no other boundary. If you're a skeptic, My friends, this invitation to this feast was bought at the great price of Christ's blood. Accept it. You'll get no better offer today or ever. Let's pray. 